Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of Jill on Money. And on this episode, we are talking about how to leverage diversity in the workplace. The value of diversity is that if you hire all people from Harvard, that sounds great, right? You get them in a room. They're all going to be thinking the same way. They're going to be interacting with each other the same way. They're going to see the world in a similar fashion. And when you bring in people from differing backgrounds, experiences, cultures, you name it, now all of a sudden you look at a problem, you're seeing it from all angles. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. This is the program where we provide unconventional insights on your money, your career, and your life. I'm your host, Jill Schlesinger. Yeah, we changed the name in case you haven't realized that. Check out that new cover art. Tell me what you think. Today, we've got a really interesting interview. Porter Braswell, he is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Jopwell. He is trying to create opportunities for career advancement for people of color. And I find this to be fascinating because for all the talk and all the yammering about diversity in the workplace... We still got a long way to go. So I'm really interested. We sought him out to find out what's going on right now as 2019 has begun. Where are there opportunities? What can we all do to build more diverse teams and how we can manage that process? So here's our interview with Porter Braswell. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Porter Braswell, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me here. Uh, So, Porter, we start the program with a very important question. Best financial or career decision you've made in your very young life? By far, starting my own business. Not even, nothing comes close to that. And 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 you like it, all the pressure and all the anxiety? There's nothing I'd rather be doing than doing something where I'm learning, I'm passionate about what I'm working on, and that's solving a real problem. And to be able to make money on top of that, there's nothing else I can imagine doing. This is going to be a tough interview because you must speak for all of the universe and <laughs> as to why diversity matters. And so it's great because I can step off of my soapbox and let you come on top of it. So first, let's start a little bit with your, your life story. Where'd yep. you grow up? I grew up in a town called Baskin Ridge in New Jersey. Where uh, AT&T has some big headquarters. That's correct. Right. And I grew up in the type of family where to be successful, and I put air quotes around that, you have to be a doctor, you have to be a lawyer, you can go into (laughs) finance, and that's pretty much it. My dad was uh, the first person in his family to go to college. He's from the Bronx originally. And long story short, became a lawyer, became a general counsel, and for a publicly traded utility company. And so growing up in the type of household, my sister and I both it was ingrained in us you got to go into these industries to like move the family forward that's mm. like that's like um a responsibility that we have wow and so did you have to go to therapy or something you know like what? that's not a lot yet. of thought to carry not yet not mm. yet <laughs> and then i was fortunate to go to a boarding school called lawrenceville for high school which is super preppy like new jersey fancy boarding school yeah. theater to princeton but you didn't go to princeton did not go to princeton um, hmm. But 24 of my classmates, I believe, did. <laughs> and and while I was at Lawrenceville, Morgan Stanley was offering a diversity internship program for high school students. And somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, that's that industry finance you, sh- you should pay attention to. Uh-huh. And I got lucky. I got an internship there and started working there my junior, senior years in high school. So you played ball at Yale. You had to be a point guard, right? I was a point guard. Yeah, obviously. Strong. I think I might be taller than you are. Wait I don't know. How tall are you? I don't- Six one. All right, you're taller than I am. <laughs> I'm five eleven. Let's see. I was six feet 
in probably seventh grade. No way. And you couldn't tell me I wasn't going to the NBA. And all of a sudden, I stopped growing. Oh. And then I was a six-foot seventh grade point guard. So can you just talk a little bit about, um, I always talk about how I think it's important that sports is a really good breeding ground for your professional life. Can you talk about some of the skills and attributes that you learned playing sports in college? People ask me all the time, what is it like being a CEO and how were you prepared to become a CEO? And the honest truth is I still don't know how to be a CEO, but I know how to be a coach. And when I think of myself and what I want the company to look like and how I want the company to perform, I want them to be athletes in their mindset and their actions and how they interact with one another, their discipline, getting work done. And what I believe is my job is to give people the playbook and say, this is this is our strategy. Now, you can be creative within the lines, and that's how you can be the best person you could be within this business. And I'm going to motivate you and I'm going to coach you through and do everything in my power to make sure that you're successful. But if you're not, you're on the bench and somebody's coming in. And that's the way I run the company. I love that idea of like sort of here's the playbook, like master this. Yep. And then we can talk about how you're going to sort of go a little bit of freestyle off of that. Absolutely. But master the plan, right? Master the plan. Know what the strategy is. Know what we're trying to achieve. Be a good teammate. Do your job and then help others. So you came out of Yale. What happened when you graduated from Yale? Where'd you go next? Yeah. So while I was at Yale, I knew I wasn't going to the NBA. And so I spent three summers interning at Goldman Sachs. And I was always a part of diversity recruiting programs and efforts. And that's how I got my foot into the door. And so after college, I accepted a full-time job there. And I started working on their currency desk. And you were trading. I was I was on the sales side. On the sales side, because yeah. you're so sparkling in that personality. <laughs> I feel it already. I feel like I'm being closed right now. I'm about to give you all of my money to invest in, uh, you know, oh, uh, the, one the Thai it. bot or something. <laughs> Talk about the diversity effort. So I know all the big Wall Street firms have big diversity and inclusion groups in the in the firm, but also efforts to recruit. How successful have they been? I think from. If you take a step back and you look at all of the industries that are out there that are talking about the importance of diversity and have come around to understand why it's a business imperative, I truly believe that the large, bold bracket banks do it the best. Yeah. And I think they do it the best because they have programs in place where they go out and they recruit you starting in high school, like like I was recruited, and they understand the value of getting their brand out in front of an audience really early in college. They cultivate that talent. They bring them in as a class. Within within that class, you see others that look like you. You start building relationships. You meet incredible people from around the world. And you truly have this, this global perspective of working in highly competitive organizations. You're working really hard. You're working in the amazing markets. And there's nothing that prepares you better for life than that than that starting place. Well, can you talk about being this black kid who, you know, you're from, you grew up in a white world, right? Pretty much like mm-hmm. Baskin Ridge, pretty white place, right? Yeah, very suburban. Lawrenceville. Pretty white place. Very diverse, though. right? Oh yeah. Okay, because they recruit. They recruit from around the world. We have uh, forty-eight states represented and fifty-two countries represented. Okay, so talk about being a black kid and walking into Goldman Sachs and what that felt like for you. Um, it felt like everyday life. It felt like nothing that was different than what I've experienced in the past. Can you explain what that means when you walk into a when you walk into an office? downtown, you walk into the Goldman Sachs building and there are some black people around, but it's it's very white. So 
what is it that you feel when you walk into a place like that? And how were you treated? What was what were some of your experiences and what are some of the experiences of your cohorts, maybe in other firms? Yeah. So what I'll what I'll speak more generally about is, is what from my experiences and being ingrained in this community and having friends that work at many banks and have and not just banks or, you know, consulting companies that where they walk in and they look they look different than everybody else. I think it's one of those things that the reality of it is that the world in which we spend most of our time in within corporate America is a very white culture. And what we as people of color always experience, and a lot of what I talk about in the book and Let Them See You, is that thing called like the spotlight effect. Yes. And you truly feel that because you are the only in a, in a sea of otherness, you feel like you're being looked at or examined or um, your work is being at times maybe more critically viewed than others. And that spotlight effect and that feeling of the being the only, a couple of things happen. It can either paralyze you and make you fearful and kind of bring you in as a person and you, and you become insecure, or it can motivate you and you can leverage it as an asset because you are being viewed. And so you do have a spotlight and leverage that spotlight. Hmm. And so I think people have to deal with that spotlight effect um, to the best of their ability. But when you walk into these worlds, you definitely feel that. It's interesting. I was uh, at a a dinner. There was a a whole group of us around, and there was a really interesting conversation. There were about, let's say, uh, if there were maybe 20 people there, um, about 30% were women of color. It's so wild when you talk to the women because they feel like there's like many whammies against them, right? So it's a woman, I'm a person of color. But what they talked about was actually that spotlight is one that also carries a certain amount of weight um, that they feel in terms of helping the younger generation. Absolutely. And so what's fascinating to me is they, um, they're almost exhausted because they feel like I have to do my full-time job. I have to be a great mentor to the people of color here, to the women here, and they literally are just spent. There's a lot being asked to build those diversity efforts, and I feel like it's the a lot of those senior people, men and women, they're really doing double, triple duty, trying to take care and, and nurture those folks. Why are the efforts within these companies not quite filling that role that those individuals are filling? So what you just described is something that truly exists. And those that don't understand that, that's where a lot of the issues arise. Because people of color, women, those that fall within the diversity umbrella are doing two jobs and not being compensated for it. Right. And we feel that responsibility because we got a break or somebody looked out for us. So we have to pay it forward. Mm -hmm. And if if that wasn't your existence into getting into your particular opportunity, you just may not understand that. And what I think is incredibly important, and it goes back to being an athlete, it is what it is and you have to do it. And you have a responsibility to bring that next person up and you have a responsibility to mentor others. At the same time, the organization has a responsibility to create opportunities for that to be recognized. In recognizing that, that's where opportunity for growth within an organization should occur. occur. If companies truly believe, and it's been proven time and time again from McKinsey and others, that a more diverse workforce leads to bottom line success, 
then they should be compensating employees as a result of making their workforce more diverse. Talk a little bit about, uh, you were at Goldman for how many years? I was there for three years. And then what led you to start this company? Talk about the beginning stages of that and where you are today with the company. Yeah, so what initially happened was um, I was two years into the job and my cousin passed away and he was about 30 years old when it, when it occurred. And to me, that was the first true moment where somebody that close to me passed. And it was this hit of reality that life can end. Mm. And when that, when that happened to me, I kind of examined my life and took a step back and said, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate to be on this fast track to where I am today and amazing opportunities and experiences, but am I doing what I'm meant to be doing? Mm-hmm. And I went through this journey of trying to examine what do I want to do in my life? What have I been exposed to? What have been my opportunities? And I kept coming back to being a person of color. Like that is who I am. And I'm so proud of that. You are? I am. Oh my God. (laughs) And so what I recognize is that I was incredibly fortunate to have the opportunities that I had, but I knew that that was rare to my circumstances and it shouldn't have been. And so when I started to look around about and thinking through what I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to operate and provide access and opportunities to other professionals of color to give them the breaks that I had, and they shouldn't necessarily have to be breaks, it should be on merit, and create a platform that allows that to occur at scale. And so what does that platform look like? And plug your company name. The company is called Jopwell, J-O-P-W-E-L-L, and we assist companies with all things diversity recruitment and marketing. On one side of the platform, we have about 120 of the world's leading brands. And on the other side of the platform, we have an amazing community of black, Latinx, and Native American students and professionals. And our technology facilitates connections and introductions. That's awesome. I mean, it's really, it's fantastic because it is recognizing a need. Because I do think that, you know, if you're, if you're you, right, if you're a porter and you grow up and you sort of like are willing to take a shot. That's one thing. But there's a whole group of kids who don't know how to access that world. Mm -hmm. They don't know that someone like that firms like Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs and maybe I don't know, maybe Procter and Gamble do these things now. Maybe those big brands do that. They don't know that it's there. So how are you getting the workers to find out about you? Our marketing strategy has been incredibly targeted and very specific about how we go about and attracting the users and the members of the of the Jopwell community. And so the initial challenge that we were trying to solve for is that companies said back when we started the company three and a half, four years ago, that they can't find diverse talent. That makes me insane. It's Okay, sorry. It's it, I know. It's why we built the business. I know. Makes me crazy. And so we said to them, okay, what are you looking for? How do you define quality? Let's start with that. But what we started to see is that as we expanded our relationships, the definition of quality meant widely different things. Some would just define it as we're, we are very interested in college athletes because of what they can bring to the table. Others would say we look at those that have had a really difficult background and they've demonstrated success throughout their life, so they should succeed here. And that definition kept getting broader, which allowed us to go after more and more and more mm. users. And now we are fortunate to be in a place where companies truly cannot say that they can't find the talent that they would define as qualified because it exists on Jopwell. You know what's fascinating? I have a friend of mine who is a managing partner at a law firm, and she she very candidly admitted something to me that I thought was very interesting. She said, you know, I want to try to hire more diverse candidates. She goes, but at the end of the day, sometimes I'm lazy because mm-hmm. what she said was, you know, if I see applicant A... Yep. It went to St. John's Law School. 
and applicant B went to Harvard Law School. In her head, she sort of feels like, well, Harvard already did the first round for me, mm-hmm. right? They've they've sussed out that this person is smart and qual and you know maybe not qualified, or whatever. And then she said to me, she goes, so and when I look at the St. John's resume, I am naturally sort of like, well, I don't have so much time. I'll just grab the Harvard one. Yeah. And what she found out was, of course, that the hires that she has made from St. John's, from Hofstra, from some uh, from Rutgers have been the hardest working and actually most successful associate she's ever hired. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like, of course. Right? <laughs> and and what I what I tell people, the value of diversity is that if you hire all people from Harvard, that sounds great, right? You get them in a room, they're all going to be thinking the same way, they're going to be interacting with each other the same way. Um, they're going to see the world in a similar fashion. And when you bring in people from differing backgrounds, experiences, cultures, you name it, now all of a sudden you look at a problem, you're seeing it from all angles. So naturally, that St. John's, that Rutgers, that Hofstra grad is going to kill it. And you know what's amazing? So this is from your book, Let Them See You. And by the way, if you're out there and you are a person of color, you know, you can go on to Jopwell's website, but you can also buy this book and you can give it to your boss because there's some great statistics and you give a great history of sort of how diversity initiatives began. I really enjoyed that. 2017 study, 80% of employers report their biggest barrier to identifying qualified talent was too many unqualified junk resumes from job boards. Okay. So then they turn to referrals and you say to your staff, hey, Porter, Jill, go get me some people. Mm -hmm. And what do we do? We hire the people that we know from our circle in many of these organizations, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so the stat that blew my mind, the referrals make up just 7% of employers' applicant pools, and they account for 40% of total hires. Mm-hmm. And you say this is a source of sameness. Yeah. How do we break this cycle? What I tell people, again, all, all the time when they ask me about how do these companies get to where they are, I truly, in my bones, believe it's not intentional and it's not It's not racism in how they got to where they are. Typically, what has happened is that you have two white males who start a business, a tech company. Yep. They hire their two white male buddies from college. Yep. And you grow and you grow and you invite their friends and their friends and their friends. And you're 25 guys and two women. And you're probably all from a similar town or background or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And you didn't do that because you wanted to exclude others you did it because you wanted to hire the closest trusted friends you have at that stage right and then all of a sudden you wake up and you're five thousand employees and you're like oh my god what do we do mm-hmm. and if you keep relying on referrals you never get your way out of that right so in steps drop well or in steps other organizations that are a third party that have these amazing networks and now we infuse difference into your recruiting pool and you would treat our candidates as you would treat any other internal referral If we are leveraging our technology to surface highly qualified and curated candidates that fit what you say you're looking for, give them that interview and don't let them go into a black box. So how does Jopwell make money? Companies pay a flat annual fee or multi-year fee to have access to our community and our services. All different industries, correct? All different industries. And so if I go onto the website um, and I poke around, how am I finding, like what happens? Do I post jobs? How does it work? Yep. So when a company comes across Jopwell, they reach out, 
they schedule a call with one of our professionals. And basically what we do is that we don't sell. We just listen to what your pain points are. What are your challenges? What are you, where are you on your diversity journey? Far too often companies say, oh, we just need more people of color. And it's like, hold on a second. <laughs> what have you done in the past? What are you currently doing? What are you trying to achieve? What, what does success look like? And we won't partner with anybody that doesn't go through that process with us. Mm-hmm. And once we understand where you are on your diversity journey and where you're trying to go, we'll then assess what type of partnership makes sense for you. Mm-hmm. And so we like to truly get to know the organizations we work with. We have an incredibly sticky business model because we become entrenched within these organizations. And so that's our approach to deciding who we choose to work with. What What is your view on the diversity efforts, not just in the door, but I I seem well I mean I guess maybe I'm speaking more about the women situation mm-hmm. which is that we'll see people go out and hire lots of women but then the women fall out yeah. over time maybe they go out on maternity leave or they come back or it's not a place that's welcoming for a parent uh how do you wrap your mind around that and what can Jopwell do in terms of helping maybe women who are onboarding after career shift so that that hits on a lot of different things and i think the first thing that the first thing that that hits on is how do companies even define diversity mm-hmm. so diversity is a word that gets thrown around and it really means nothing because what it now means is basically everybody that's not a straight white male and when you when any company is trying to solve a problem or build a world-class solution to anything, you have to be incredibly focused on what you're doing. You have to do one thing incredibly well. Mm -hmm. And I feel that a lot of the challenges when it comes to this diversity conversation is that people are scared to actually define what they mean by their pain points in the diversity umbrella. Mm -hmm. And that feeds into retention. So again, when they're thinking about we have to retain our diverse employees, you're basically saying, okay, white men, we're not going to focus on you. We're going to focus on everybody else and we're going to try to figure out how to go about it. And there's so many different ways to try to retain professionals of color and the obstacles we face, which are drastically different than parents, which are drastically different than older folks or younger folks or sexual orientation or socioeconomic backgrounds. And the way to retain so many different groups of individuals is that the company has to just breathe and and speak about it, all things diversity and inclusion. And it has to be part of the culture. And it's not just a committee. It's the whole entire business. And those that just assign a committee head or they launch one or two employee resource groups and say, okay, we're good, we checked off the box, it's not going to work. I told you before we got on the air my story about uh, a CEO who was telling me how they're very passionate about diversity, except that when you don't hit your diversity targets, nothing happens to you. How do these organizations keep the the staff accountable to the process? As you say, I agree with you. I mean, I think it starts with a tone at the top, but it's it's ongoing. It's like it's part of your job. And mm-hmm. and it's not just, oh, uh, it's Pride Month. Uh, we better put a float in the parade. And, uh, oh, it's Black History Month. Let's go get, you know, someone who uh, wrote a book about mm, and show a movie. It can't be that. Yeah, it can't be that. And I think the... What I have belief in is that truly more diverse workforces outperform their less diverse counterparts. So to me, this is not a feel-good story. 
This is not a charity. If you want to build a world-class business and you want to disrupt industries, you better be diverse. And my belief is that over time, those that aren't are going to fail. They're going to lose. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to see them lose. <laughs> and those organizations that embrace being diverse and they truly make it a business imperative, they're going to win. And I want to buy from those businesses. As America by 2040 becomes a country of majority people of color, you better adapt and look what this country looks like because you're going to lose. Yeah. And so when you are looking ahead, are you filled with optimism, pessimism? How are you feeling? Like, I mean, it feels like a weird time to in the country. And there's so much. It's uh, obviously so divisive, but it doesn't feel divisive in corporate America, per se. So how are you thinking about these these efforts in these, you know, in light of so many things happening? So it's like. Me Too, Black Lives Matter, a lot of different movements coming t together. How is that impacting the businesses that you deal with? Yeah, you know what? I think it goes back to your question about how have you been able to translate being an athlete into what you currently do? And I think while being an athlete, especially at like the highest levels, you lose every single day at every single practice you miss a shot you you don't run the play correctly you get yelled at you, you, you like you just go you get you go through the ringer as an athlete and i think that builds thick skin and i think it naturally makes people more optimistic down the road outside mm. of sports so i'm an i am an incredibly optimistic person but i'm not oblivious to what's going on in the world but i have to believe that we're headed in a good direction and I have to believe that with the work of other organizations such as Joppel and those that those leaders within corporate America that truly care, that it's going to be enough to carry the country forward. And if I don't have that belief and I don't have that optimism, I don't know if I can get up every morning and do what I do. So I have to believe that we're that we are going to be what we are meant to be in this country and the country, the workforce is going to be reflective of what this country looks like. And I just believe that that's that's the way it has to be. Mm, I like that. Okay, before we let you go, we started the program and I said, what was your best decision? What was your worst decision? Did you buy some Bitcoin at the top? I did. A lot. <laughs> I'm still holding strong. No way. What price? It's strong. I bought it. I I rode Ripple from 23 cents to like, what, $3 or whatever and rode it all the way back down to whatever, 36 cents today. And you still hold it? Oh, yeah. So right now that Long is the term. worst. For, at this moment, that looks like the worst decision, no, but we don't know no, yet. No, definitely. I've invested in companies where I haven't got my money back. So. All right. <laughs> so you, so you're, but, and you're, you're okay with it? Oh, yeah. You got to take cuts. <laughs> got to take some swings. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're listening to Jill on Money. Welcome to the Jill on Money Call of the Week. We are here to serve you, my friends, but only if you send us your financial questions. It's so easy. Shoot us an email. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com or if you're poking around the website, JillOnMoney.com, there's a contact us button. We will respond either way. Today, we are talking to Chris from Milwaukee. Hi, Chris. What can I do for you? Hi, Jill. Um, I have a sort of a complicated question in my mind. Um, I'm, a, I'm a teacher. I'm a high school English teacher, and I teach in an urban school district, a public school district. Um, and I have uh, about $4,000 left on my undergraduate loans and about $40,000 in my master's degree loans. Mm -hmm. um, and I get mailers weekly uh, all the time from different companies that are asking me to um, consolidate or to, to service my loans with them. I, I, I have paid my loans on time ahead of time for years, so it's not that I needed a forbearance or defer or anything like that. 
But when I, on occasion, when I've called these companies and kind of worked through their phone tree and process and things, um, they all tell me that I'm eligible for a 10-year um, sunset of my loans that I that I can um, pay them on. I can convert them to their service, and then after 10 years, because of I work in a public school in an urban uh, district, that I can have the rest of my loans forgiven. Uh, and they usually want to bump my monthly payment down as well, which all sounds very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really nervous about it because I know there's been, particularly with the Department of, uh, the Department of Education, um, there's been a lot of people that have thought they had signed up for something like this, and then they get to the end of 10 years and find out that they hadn't. Yeah. Um, and then they've got no recourse, or the or the recourse they have um, takes, you know, really just like a, you got to hire a lawyer and have a full-time mm. person look through the paperwork, mm. and I'm just not good at that, and I have two kids, and I was wife and things. That I yeah, you're like, I've got other things to do. So let me, let's go through this. The $4,000 on the undergraduate loan, is it a federal loan? Uh, it is, although I did consolidate it once years and years and years ago. But it's still uh, a federal so loan? I believe so. Okay, that's important, and I'm going to tell you why. The 40000 federal or private? Uh, it's federal, but it's serviced by private companies, so mm-hmm. I don't Okay. Uh, I think there's I think there's Stafford. Okay. So that's good. Okay. So the reason why I asked that is that I would not I would be very careful about doing anything with a private company right now. Right. Because once you're with a fr- private company, you know what happens is that you lose your ability to get all those cool programs through the federal government. Now. Right. So if you really are interested in loan forgiveness, then you would go to the to the website studentaid.ed.gov. That's where you want to go. That's really like the whole part of the where all the plans are housed. Okay. Now, right. let me ask you a couple more questions. Is it hard for you or what what's happening right now? Um, I think it's fine. I, I pay $100 on my undergrad and $300 on my graduate loans. Uh, I will say that I will never pay these loans off at this rate. Um, like, I, I'll be dead before. I mean, I'm 46 right now. Come on. Yeah, uh, and I just, like, I have two kids and, and, and a mortgage, and so $400 a month is a pretty big yeah. line item. Yeah. Um, so the way the way it is, like, like the, the pace for this, they will not be paid off before I die. Okay, so what I would look at, is I would go to studentaid.ed.gov. I would really start to dig in about the loan forgiveness plans. The thing that is important with this is that, I mean, you really have to know that you're staying in the public school system, right? You have to stay on top of it. But I don't think you need to be doing it with a different middleman. I almost feel like you probably are better off doing it yourself. I really think that that's important. And if you really don't think you're going to be able to pay it off, I mean, the cool thing about these plans is that these plans will essentially allow you to drop your payment amount, but you cannot miss a payment or else you blow your shot at this whole thing. Correct. And then, you know, after a certain number of years... 10 years, usually if you pay it, you're all set. I don't know if you can get, I don't know if you're allowed to do this retrospectively. In other words, I, 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 don't, I don't think you yeah, can. 
I don't think you can either, which is sort of why, you know, I, I, there were a couple of years ago where I tried to go through the Department of Education, um, and it's it's just it's it's very complicated about what loans can be forgiven, yeah. and how much, and it depends on. I teach English, and if you teach math or science, it's a little easier, but it, it's very difficult. I find to get a straight answer or to figure out exactly what you need to do to qualify because sometimes you need to convert your loans yeah and that's another whole set of paperwork i'm trying to think about the right person to send you to but i would go i i definitely feel like if you start with the plan with the with the government's website that's fine i also might go to nextgenvest.com that is this woman who's been on the podcast uh kelly peeler it is a it is really a program that helps kids who are applying to college, but I think they might be able to help you with this whole idea of public school loan forgiveness. I, I think right. that, you know, I know that you want guidance. I just I feel like yes. you you wish you could hire someone to help you do this. Right. But it's probably going to be something on you anyway. And there's a weird thing that I'm thinking about, which is if you do it yourself, you're going to finally you'll understand this once and for all. There's a whole section of studentaid.ed.gov that's, you know, PSLF, Public School Loan Forgiveness. There's a million different things. I mean, maybe the worst thing in the world wouldn't be to just apply and start the process. I wouldn't want you to do like one of these income-driven repayment plans, but I would be, I mean, this is, this is, seems like if you're going to be a teacher, this is, and you feel comfortable that like you absolutely are going to stay in the system, then you'll stay on top of this. And Boy, there's a great incentive, right? I mean, honestly, check out nextgenvest.com. See if they have any information about that. Because I don't want you to feel that anxiety that, oh, geez, I, I'm, I'm going to have this forever. Because it would be nice not to. I think the plan was actually created for people like you. So we'd like you to take advantage of it. I, I think the attraction to those private companies is they tell you that, like, we'll take care of you. Yeah, I don't believe we'll process, that. All, we'll process all your paperwork whatever but that makes me nervous because i like what if they don't exactly i don't trust that at all i think you're very you're very wise i i absolutely agree with you i mean there are plenty of companies who are out there and they're doing it right they're they're looking out there they're you know there's companies that are doing installment loans for that matter but i think you're going to always have to go to the source and that means dealing with the federal government about these loans and i think that i don't i trust you more than i trust them well but even that like i feel like the there's people that were enrolled in the federal program that they that they just want a lawsuit where the 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 federal government wasn't honoring their you know yeah they were given they they was like a lot of monkeying around i know exactly what you're talking about but on the other hand i mean that's going to be a question one way or the other but you're still going to have to be responsible for it so again i'd much rather you do it I don't know. I just I, I maybe you do. I just don't have a uh, real security in someone else doing it for you unless yeah. I could like tell you, yes, I know this person and that person does it. I don't sure. feel that. I don't know those per- those people. All right. I'll pursue some of these websites and then I'll let you know how it goes. Let me know how it goes. But I think that you should pursue it because it obviously it's really made for someone like you. Thank you so much to our guest, Porter Braswell, and our caller, Chris. Remember, we drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. If you'd like to get on the air with us, just send us an email. AskJill at JillOnMoney.com. AskJill at JillOnMoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer, and we're distributed by Cadence 13.